This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Hello, I'm Don Huseman. I'm the Managing Director of the Wharton School's Innovation Group. Uh, today I'll be speaking with Daphne Kohler. Daphne is the co-founder of Coursera, the world's largest provider of MOOCs. Uh, she's also a computer scientist at Stanford University. Daphne uh, discussed the uh, Coursera initiative with us two years ago, and today we're looking for an update to find what's new, what's changed, and what's coming in the future. Thanks, Daphne, for coming and talking to us this, uh, this morning. Um, Pleasure to be here. It's been a couple of years since we saw you last, and uh, 2012 when we saw you was, according to the New York Times, the year of the MOOC. That's right. And then a, a number of people in the higher education press decided that by 2013, the revolution was over. That's so right. my question is, is the revolution over? No, I think um, the both the, we're in the Gartner hype cycle and we're just, I think, emerging from the trough of disillusionment. Partly what happened was that the hype was completely unmerited. It was based on a presumption that we're going to put universities out of business, a position that we neither endorsed nor thought was uh, the right thing to do. Um, and then in 2013, we had the disillusionment because, whoa, it's been 12 months and we still haven't put universities out of business. Oh, my gosh. So. So I think neither of those two views are the right one. Uh, what we're seeing as our target audience is people who are primarily working adults and are not currently candidates for, um, for traditional forms of education. That's the vast majority of our audience. And they keep coming. We have over 10 million users on the site right now, and they're very happy with what they're getting. And the rate of increases remain constant? Yes, we're seeing a significant increase over time in both the number of users overall, but also the number of active users on the site, and also a very significant increase in the number of people who consider this sufficiently valuable that they pay for one of the verified credentials, the verified certificates that we offer. In terms of uh, looking at the, the metrics, that some of those that you just mm -hmm. mentioned, mm -hmm. wondering what the key metrics are for you in terms of... Uh, uh, addressing some of the critics of mm -hmm. the MOOC landscape. People have suggested, for instance, that the early demographic studies that showed uh, that most MOOC participants are not who we imagine, but are rather well-educated mm -hmm. uh, from uh, developed nations, uh, disproportionately male. Mm -hmm. um, uh, ha have those demographics changed, or, or uh, is that a, a metric that you follow mm -hmm. in terms of evaluating the initiative. Right. So we definitely follow those metrics. Those initial studies were done on a subset of early courses that were primarily graduate-level courses when offered at the universities that offered them, and as such appealed primarily to people with university degrees. Um, if you look at our current demographics, 75% um, of our users do have college degrees. That in turn means that 25% don't, which is still 2.5 million people. So that's just an awful lot of people that are getting access to education that don't currently have that. Um, however, I think it's important to remember that even the 75% who do have college degrees, that doesn't mean that they're your wealthy yuppies working on Wall Street. Um, there are many parts of the world where having a college degree is far from being a guarantee of employability. In some cases, like um, in the developed 
in the developing countries, um, many of the colleges offer a very um, mediocre educational experience that in many cases is, by, is far from being a guarantee of a, of a good job. In many other parts of the world, um, people are finding that the education that they got when they went to college 15, 20 years ago is no longer adequate for the kind of jobs that the current economy needs. And they absolutely need to have that kind of refresher in order for them to have access to the jobs that they like. We're getting so many stories from people who say that by taking these courses, even when they had college degrees, it was a complete transformation for them in terms of their career prospects. Is there evidence from the employer's side of the, that, that the, or what evidence is there that the employers are valuing either the signature track certificates or or if you could speak to as well this new concept of a specialization? So first of all, um, there is evidence from both the employer side and the employee side. Uh, we're at something like 70% of people who earn verified certificates from uh, either a, a course or a specialization are posting those credentials on LinkedIn. We're currently the second biggest credential supplier, if you will, Coursera, on LinkedIn right after Microsoft, which is incredible for two and a half years. That suggests that the, that the prospective employees are seeing value in these credentials. In terms of the employer side, um, we had uh, one of our other university partners, Duke, uh, together with RTI, did an interesting study of employers in North Carolina. So this is not you know, just high-tech employers in Silicon Valley. This was across multiple sectors. And I think 73% of them said that they would value a credential from a MOOC as a component in a hiring process. So I think we're starting to see significant uptake on the employer side. Um, with regards to Coursera as an organization, uh, I have a couple of questions. One is the uh, last time we met, we talked about various potential avenues for revenue generation. Yeah. Uh, any updates on the business model yeah. behind Coursera? So partly as a matter of focus, we have decided that we're going to initially really pay attention to the verified certificate for both courses and specializations as the primary revenue source for us. That's worked out really well in the sense that if you look at the number of people, of course completers, the fraction of course completers who are opting to earn a verified certificate, that number has climbed steadily from less than 10% when we started started to, to somewhere between 20 to 25 percent um, right now with some of the courses, especially ones that are part of those specializations that, that we talked about, which are these larger units of learning where there's also a project at the end that demonstrates the ability to apply those learnings in the context of a real-world problem, the conversion rate into the verified certificate in those courses is often north of 40 percent uh, among course completers, and that's a very significant fraction. So we're very confident that this can be a significant revenue source that will make us sustainable while still still allowing us to continue to offer free education. Is there an appetite on the part of, uh, of companies who have HR departments and their own mm -hmm. internal yeah. you know, professional development processes uh, to reach out to you to use your materials or, the, or let's say the, the learning assets that are available through the Coursera mm -hmm. platform 
for their own internal purposes? Absolutely. We've had contact with a relatively large number of companies, including some of the largest and highest branded employers out there. Uh, we have put this on hold temporarily until we build the current platform that is moving to an on-demand model, which would make the courses available to anyone at any time rather than at particular dates, which is the model that we've had so far. Um, this will help our learners in the general public who are often working adults and would cannot structure their lives around their learning. They need to structure their learning around their lives. Um, but also it would be uh, incredibly important, as we've heard from these potential corporate partners, because they need their employers, employees to have access to the content whenever they need it to be there as opposed to, um, you know, at some particular start date that's arbitrarily determined by some a faculty member's calendar. So that's going to be a key part of getting this into these corporate training programs. I wonder how that uh, uh, syncs with uh, some of the feeling around the cohort model yeah. that was so distinctive regarding right. what you had managed to accomplish at scale. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, role of uh, social learning yeah. uh, in the process of, uh, of professional development and um, remaining motivated and mm -hmm. staying with a project through to the right. end. Aren't those two at odds? That's a really great question and one that we've spent a lot of time thinking about. Uh, we are very committed to the social component of learning, uh, but I think what we've realized is that when you have a very large course, uh, what matters is that there are people around you doing the same thing at the same time, as opposed to it's the same people from the beginning to the end of the course. So um, if you're in module three, what matters is that there are a few hundred or thousand people all working with you in module three that you can engage in conversation with it doesn't some of them might have started earlier and are going slowly some of them might have started very recently and are blazing through the course but that doesn't really matter to you in terms of the social engagement that you have that being said we're also building out the capability to create pre-constructed cohorts. So for example, a group of employees at a company or a group of uh, uh, learners in one of the learning hubs that we have in US embassies around the world could come in and say, we're going to take the course together as a group, all of us on the same schedule. And the ability of the on-demand platform to accommodate the fact that they want to start today as opposed to in three months is going to be really important for enabling that while still allowing them to create that little social community of people who really do get to know each other, and it really is a cohort in a way that 50,000 people isn't. Um, I have a question about Coursera's uh, choices regarding uh, its uh, for-profit structure yeah. by comparison to most notably, I guess, edX, which chose to go the 501c3 mm -hmm. nonprofit approach. Right. Does that difference in corporate structure uh, change the way decisions are made at Coursera? Uh, we believe that by going this route, it has made us more uh, nimble and uh, faster to move because we don't need to get approval from a governing board for every decision. Uh, we believe that it's also given us um, a sense of urgency, which is not as easily obtained when you have, you know, $60 million and, and the backing of two of the world's richest universities. So I think we have been able to be very fast to execute while still, I think, remaining very true to the social mission that inspired us to start this in the first place. So to be very concrete as an example, when we launched the verified certificates, um, 
we realize that $50 might not be a significant amount to someone here in the U.S. or in Europe, but it is for someone in Africa or in India. And so we launched it together with a financial aid option, which uh, allows someone who is who really can benefit from the credential but can't afford it to request basically a fee waiver and we just grant it. Um, I don't think edX has had that. Maybe they had it recently but they didn't in the beginning and I think it really speaks to the fact that we're sort of balancing the, you know, the commercial component of who we are but also staying very true to our social goals. So the venture capitalists aren't a problem for you? No. Uh, they have not been pushing us to monetize. In fact, I have to say that the biggest pressure for us to bring in revenue has largely been that we wanted to bring revenue back to our university partners so that they can sustain course development because otherwise it's a drain on resources that might be hard to justify because it's coming at the expense of something else. So we've started to bring in revenue as early as we did, primarily so as to allow our university partners to increase their content pipeline. And just one last question is just looking into the future a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, can you project where Coursera might be in two or three years? Yeah, well, I think it's a really exciting question, and I think there's different parts to it. First of all, today we're getting close to 900 courses. I think that early in 2015 we'll be at 1,000. I think in three years we'll have 5,000 courses. Um, which is about the curriculum of your average medium to large university in terms of the breadth of courses that we're able to offer. When you layer on top of that the very significant translation and localization effort that we're currently undertaking, that will be uh, a, a time at which we can teach anybody, anywhere, anything they want to learn, which I think is a really compelling vision in terms of democratizing education. And we all know that democratizing education can have profound impact on pretty much any problem that plagues the world in, in making it a better place. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.